Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bila and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for joining us, especially on this memorial day weekend where i know you could be out barbecuing out in the sun but instead you chose to be with us in person so i pray that our time together will be an encouragement to you let's bow our heads and ask now for god to minister to us father we pray that you would speak to us through your word for you promised us that you would that when two or more would gather under uh the authority of your son that you would be present among us. And so, God, we ask that you would come and be present. And through your presence, may we find healing and hope, restoration and renewal, so that once again we could affirm who we are in Christ of being beloved children of God and therefore be emboldened by that identity as going out into the world to be salt and light, servants of the world, so that we can show the one who is the hope of the world. Father, would you now encourage and lift us up with edifying words through the message of the gospel, and that now you would bless it in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. In one of his most famous political speeches, President Ronald Reagan once said these iconic words, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Now, whether or not you agree with President Reagan, one thing that no doubt all of us will agree is something similar sounding as it pertains to family, and it's this. A family is never more than one generation away from dysfunction. Again, a family is never more than one generation away from dysfunction. And when you consider some of the sobering stats that measure the health and well-being of families in our society today, it's sad to say that so many generations have passed, resulting in too many dysfunctions in the home. Consider some of these sobering facts. Illegitimate birth rates have increased more than 400%. The percentage of families headed by single parents have more than tripled. Teenage suicide has increased by 300%. And then there's this sad case. The number one health problem for American women today, domestic violence. Over 4 million women annually are being abused by their own partner. 
We are living in a day and age where the family is so falling apart. It is dysfunctional, resulting in a society that is decrepit and decaying. If you ever study individuals who are a menace to our society, one recurring characteristic is that they come from broken homes. If you investigated communities and neighborhoods that are impoverished and falling apart, one recurring reason, destabilize households. In our experiences and in our research, we see that when the family is falling apart, society is falling apart, which means... Which means if you want to be able to live in a society that is safe and stable, it begins with you making sure that you do all you can to your family and your future family live the most stable life possible. And according to the Bible, the crucial ingredient, the most important source of stability for families is God. God. And this principle is exemplified in one particular family that we're going to be studying for the next few weeks, and that is the family of Joseph. We're beginning a new sermon series entitled The Gospel in the Family Life of Joseph. And the whole point of this series is to see how God is able to take a very brutalized and broken family and transform it into a blessed and benefiting force to society by the power of the gospel. And begin, and today we begin this series looking at the first chapter that introduces the main character of this series, Joseph, Genesis 37. And as we take a look at this text, we're going to see three things that we must learn from if we want to avoid the tragic mistakes this family made, as well as the solution we must pursue if we've already made these mistakes. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today. First, we're going to talk about a father who messed up his kids. Then we're going to talk about a son who messed with his brothers. And then we're going to end it with the father and the son who fixes all the mess. A father who messed up his kids, a son who messed with his brothers, and finally the father and the son who fixes all the mess. Let's begin with the first point, a father who messed up his kids. So our passage begins with an introduction of Jacob. Jacob, and for those of you who aren't aware, Jacob is the patriarch. He is the head of the household. He is daddy. But one thing that you may not realize is that Jacob was terrible father i mean a really messed up dad to the point where he really harmed and hurt his kids and you might be wondering how exactly did he mess up his kids well our text tells us he did three specific things that harmed and hurt his children so badly number one he messed up his married life he messed up his married life number two he was a passive disciplinarian which means he hardly disciplined his kids at all and number three He played favorites. The three tragic failures of Jacob as dad is that he messed up his married life. He was a passive disciplinarian, and he played favorites. Let's break it down. Consider the first failure where he messed up his marriage. Let's consider just the first half of verse 2 where it reads, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wife. So here, Joseph is first introduced to us. And what is he doing? He's out in the fields working with some of his brothers. But if you read the text carefully, you'll notice that it describes his brothers in a very weird and unusual way. How does the text refer to them? The sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. It turns out that these brothers had different mothers from one another and from Joseph, which tells us that Jacob, their father, had multiple wives. And indeed, if you go back to the chapters of Genesis, specifically 29 and 30, there you discover that Jacob married four different women at the same time. He started off marrying this girl named Leah, and then he moved on to marrying Leah's sister, Rachel, who was the mother of Joseph, and then he went further to marry their two respective maidservants, Billah and Zilpah. 
You see, Jacob was a serial polygamist, resulting in him having multiple children with different mamas. And right away, we see in our text the kind of damage and dysfunction that kind of dynamic creates. Verse 2, it reads, And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Joseph was a boy who hated his brothers. He despised them. And we skip down to verse 4. We come to find they returned the favor. What does it say? They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, the point to all of this is obvious. And that is when you distort the marriage dynamic that God intended and he designed for marriage to have will always result in children who are filled with hatred, hostility, and hardness of heart towards one another. You see, the Bible tells us that God designed marriage to always be between one man and one woman at any given time. And any distortion or divergence from that will always result in children who are filled with such animosity and hostility towards one another. Consider what Jesus had to say on this matter in Matthew 19, starting in verse 4, we read, Haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. That last phrase of verse 6, united into one, conveys this idea of exclusive devotion, exclusive loyalty, exclusive love for just this one person, your spouse, to where no one else on earth experiences the physical, emotional, and relational intimacy that God intended. That is the design that God Now, when you realize this, then you come to understand that any distortion or divergence from this will result with children within that home being filled with such angst and such animosity within themselves and amongst each other. Examples of these kinds of dysfunctions come in many forms. For example, polygamy, where Jacob married multiple wives. It could also come in the form of illicit affairs or illicit fantasies that can permeate such as men addicted to pornography or women reading those novels and, and having such weird distorted images of men. Right? It can also come in the form where men and women have a breakdown in communication, where they talk down and talk trash to their spouses, creating a riff of disdain and despicability towards one another. All of these various dynamics that are distortions of what God intended always have the same results. It results with children in that home that emerge to be filled with the kinds of emotions that should not exist in the home and the behaviors as well. There's hatred instead of love. There's rejection instead of acceptance. There's hostility instead of peace. There's violence instead of nurture and care. This is what happened to Jacob's home because he failed in his married life. That was his first mistake. Now let's move on to the second failure that he did that harmed his kids so badly, and that is he was a passive disciplinarian, meaning he hardly disciplined, if at all. Let's skip down. Starting in verse 9, we read, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his fathers and to his brothers, his his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So here, Joseph is informing his father and his brothers of a weird dream that he had. And in fact, this is actually the second time he did this. Because early on in verses 8, he had another weird dream, which I'll come back to later on in the sermon. But the point I simply want to make here is this. When you consider the way his family reacted and responded to this weird dream, they didn't take it too well. 
because they interpret it as a major affront, a huge dishonoring and disrespect to his whole family, which is why Jacob seemed to be the good father at the moment. What does he start doing? He starts rebuking Joseph. It seems that maybe he's going to start disciplining him. But as we keep on reading in the story, we come to find that this discipline was hardly anything of the sort. It was very shallow and superficial because what happens? Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. Do you think that if Jacob was truly a good disciplined father, that his sons would have been jealous? Of course not, but they were. And what did Jacob do? Did he do anything about it? No, he let it fester. Now, if you know anything about Jacob, you know this is consistent to how he typically is with regard to this area of his life as dad. Because if you read other stories in Scripture where his sons do some very wicked and atrocious things, he doesn't do anything about it. He does not discipline when discipline is called for. For example, in Genesis 35, his oldest son, Reuben, does something very atrocious. You know what Reuben did? He slept with one of Jacob's other's wives, one of Reuben's own stepmothers. Now, do you think... Jacob should have done something? Yeah, he should have. He should have punished us. He should have at least kicked out the kid for doing this kind of wicked thing, but he does nothing. In Genesis 34, two of his other sons, Simeon and Levi, massacre an entire town. A lot of innocent people. Why? Because one bad citizen in that town raped their sister, Dinah. These two boys let their bloodlust go out of control, and they end up killing innocent people. And did Jacob do anything? Did he try to to correct all the matters? Did he try to do anything about it? He did nothing. You see, when it comes to discipline in the Jacob household, it was conspicuously missing. And as a result, it resulted in children in that household believing, thinking, learning that they don't need to honor, they don't need to respect any authority. And here's what's so sad. So many children in our society today are learning the same thing. So many children in our culture do not respect authority. And do you know why? Because mom and dad do not discipline when they need to discipline their children. Hear me when I say this, and you young parents, listen carefully, and you older parents, listen as well. If your children do not learn to respect authority in the home, they will not respect authority once they leave the home. Let me say that again. If your children do not learn to respect your authority while they're living with you at home, they will not respect any authority once they go outside of the home. Too many children have this belief. They can completely disregard authority if they find it personally disagreeable. And that is a huge problem. And it should be a concern for you, mom and dad, because once your children leave home and they're thinking that way, the world is going to eat them up. It is going to destroy them because as much as we live in a society that bemoans authoritarianism, our society at the same time will not tolerate people who try to go above and against authority that would disrupt the peace and serenity of our communities. If your children learn that they don't think they need to respect your authority or any authority, you are setting them up to be destroyed by this world. This is why. The Apostle Paul once said these words in Ephesians 6, Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have what? A long life on earth. 
The underlying subtext is if you don't honor father and mother, hence respect authority, you probably won't have a long life on earth at all. Why is Paul saying this? Because he's echoing the idea that we're learning in our passage in Genesis 37. Right? Children who learn to respect authority in the home will not wreak havoc in society and hence not destroyed by society because they've learned to not wreck the home life and the family life. See? Children who learn to respect their parents and to honor them will end up being equipped to go out into the world to be good, contributing citizens that create joy and peace and hope in this world. Something that Joseph and his brothers desperately needed to learn from their dad and yet over and over, Jacob failed. Now, some of you guys are hearing all this, and you're like, man, this Jacob guy, what a loser dad. He could not do anything worse than what he's already done. Surely he could not dig himself into a bigger hole of failure and mistakes. But, oh, yes, he can, and yes, he did. Because we still have one final massive failure that we need to talk about that Jacob did that ruined his kids so terribly, and that is he played favorites. Starting in verse 3, we read, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Israel's another name for Jacob. Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Here we see Jacob favored Joseph over and above his other ten sons. And here's what's so sad. Jacob didn't even try to hide it. How do I know? Because of the robe. You see that reference to the many-colored robe? According to some Old Testament scholars, this is Jacob's way of telling Joseph, hey, son, my little man, you know how your brothers are out in the grueling fields under the hot sun laboring for me? You stay home. And here, put on this nice robe. Hang out like you're at the day spa and just chillax, right? Just stay home. Just do what you got to do, whatever you want to do, or do nothing at all, and your youngs will just do all that work for me. But you, you don't have to do that. Here's the question. Why would Jacob do this? Why did he treat Joseph with such special, favorable love? The passage tells us in verse 3, because he was the son of his old age. Now, what in the world does that statement even mean? Well, in a nutshell, it basically means Jacob saw Joseph as a very special child. In fact, he saw him as the promised child. You see, When Jacob was growing up, he learned from his dad, Isaac, who in turn learned it from his dad, Abraham, that God made a promise to the first human beings, Adam and Eve, that he would send into this world a promised child who would fix all that is broken and restore all that was lost because of human sin. And for whatever reason, Jacob thought Joseph was the promised child, which is another way of saying he saw Joseph as the perfect son who could do no wrong. I know some of you guys are probably thinking of somebody right now as I say that, right? Well, that's how Joseph, uh, how Jacob saw Joseph. He saw Joseph as the perfect son. He could do no wrong. Now, let me ask you. Imagine for a moment you're one of the other sons of Jacob, right? You see your brother being treated as a perfect son who could do no wrong. How does that make you see yourself? Isn't it likely that you're going to see yourself as the imperfect child who can never get anything right for your dad? Of course, and that's exactly what happened. Out of all the mistakes and failures that Jacob made as a dad, this is probably his greatest one. Because what was the result of what happened by treating Joseph so favorably like this? His brothers, who probably don't have much in common, 
all had the common conviction that they needed to be unified in hating poor old Joseph. Now, some of you are going to and you're like, oh, poor little Jojo, poor little Joey. I can't believe he's being victimized. Oh, poor little guy. And you might feel sorry for him. But if you're tempted to do that, I'm going to tell you, hold off, because I'm going to show you in just a moment that little Joey is not that innocent. In fact, far from it, because he made contributions of his own toxicity and damaging sinfulness in his own home. To show you what I mean, let me go to my next point. A brother who messed with his brothers. Read with me just the first half of verse 3 where it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. So as I just stated, Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, right? But if you look carefully at that statement because he was the son of his old age, we come to discover that this favorable disposition towards Joseph was something that was there the moment Joseph was born. In other words, Joseph didn't become the favorite son of Jacob, he was born the favorite son of Jacob. Jacob enjoyed a favorable position from day one, something that his brothers never had the opportunity to experience. And one particular benefit that came out of this favorable positioning was that Joseph's words would carry weight and authority in the mind of Jacob to where Jacob would believe and agree with anything that Joseph would say. That's a lot of power to give to somebody, isn't it? And what did Joseph do with this incredible power his father granted him? Again, verse 2. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. What is Joseph doing? He is destroying his brother with his own words against their father, right? He's talking smack about his brothers. You see that phrase, bad? report in the original hebrew it's the same phrase that we find when those unbelieving spies came back and gave a bad report to the people of god that prompted an active rebellion to where they disobeyed god and not went into the promised land this idea of a bad report is this malicious accounting where the person reported on is seen in the worst possible light consider these words from scholar ian duguid as he says joseph did not like his brothers and so he brought back a fabricated or exaggerated account to their father of their misdeeds he played his own part in perpetuating the divisions in the household see joseph used his privileged position of having his father's ear and did nothing but speak words of lies accusations and condemnations against his brothers now here's the thing Remember who Jacob was. He was the passive father who never disciplined his kids. Why? Because quite frankly, he didn't care. But Joseph was going to try and change that and not for the better. Because by speaking these malicious words to Jacob, Joseph is attempting to transform his father from the passive dad who never disciplines to the punitive father who always wants to condemn and judge and punish and destroy. Joseph is using his privileged position to turn his father's heart away from his brothers. And the question is, why? Why would Joseph do such a thing? Well, I already read you the answer, but just in case you didn't catch it the first time, listen again. And he, Jacob, made Joseph a robe of many colors. In the text, we see that Joseph only got this beautiful robe after he gave such a damaging, blistering, and bad report about his brother's. Now, when you realize that, then you understand what's motivating little Joey. What is he doing? He is trying to make his brothers look so evil so he can look more good in the eyes of his father. He is trying to spotlight the imperfections of his brothers so that he can appear more perfect in the heart and mind of his dad. In other words, he is trying to build himself up by tearing down 
his own family. And it seems that Jacob bought it, hook, line, and sinker, evidenced by this robe that was given to him. You recall that I said earlier that this robe was a symbol that Joseph no longer had to work in the fields. But here we see that it takes on another symbolic meaning. It means that this privileged status that Joseph was born in would be a permanent fixture in his own family. So every time his brothers saw Joseph wearing this robe, not only would they be reminded that he would never have to work like they do, but they would also be reminded that he would always be seen in the eyes of their father far superior in being more loved, more wanted, more desired than they would ever experience from their own father. Now, do you think that kind of treatment would have gone to Joseph's head? Of course it did. Starting in verse 5, we read, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dream and for his words. Joseph is telling this earlier dream that I referenced in verses 5 to 8. And just from a simple reading, you know what the obvious message is. Joseph is making the claim that one day his brothers are going to bow down to him as almost like an act of worship, that they're going to see him and treat him as if he is their own God. And in the ancient world, when you, rec- when you remember, dreams are always seen as direct messages of God. It's so clear what Joseph is trying to do. In a sense, Joseph is telling his brothers, hey, guys, you know how our dad loves me more, wants me more, desires me more than he would ever love or want or desire you? Sorry to be a bearer of bad news, but it turns out it's not just our father, but our God, too, feels the same way. That means Yahweh, the God of the covenant, he loves me more than he would ever love you. He approves of me more than he would ever approve of you, and he's going to bless me more than he'll ever bless you. What is Joseph doing? He is weaponizing his relationship with God and using it to destroy his brothers, right? And what can his brothers do about it? Nothing. Because once God has decided something, there's no turning back. Once God has decreed something to be so, there is no change. And now the only thing Joseph's brothers can do is what we read. They hated him. They hated him. Now, I know some of you guys are going to hear all this and you're thinking to yourself, well, thank God I'm nothing like this kid, Joseph. Thank God that I would never do anything like this to my own family. To which I would respond, are you sure? And I'm talking to you goody-goody guys and gals in here. You know, whenever you have a family with multiple kids, usually there is someone who is more worse than the others, right? The black sheep, the bad kids. Some of you guys are looking away right now, right? And usually in that dynamic, there's also a very good kid, the cha kid, kid, right? And usually why that happens is because the good kid sees the bad kid, and he sees all the heartache and all the turmoil they are causing mom and dad, and they kind of make this internal promise, I will never do what my brother, what my I am not going to add to or pile on the stress and the turmoil upon mom and dad, and they make a commitment to each other. I will at least always be the good one. Right? And I will be so accommodating, and I will do whatever I can to make mom and dad happy. And, of course, that's not a bad thing to do. But what usually happens in that kind of dynamic is that that good child tends to be the worst critic and the most condemning judge of that bad sibling. 
to where they'll say certain words to their parents in certain moments of frustration. Dad, why don't you just kick out my brother out of the house? It'll be good for him to be on the streets. Maybe he'll finally wake up and realize that this world, this family doesn't center around him. Or maybe a daughter will say to his, her mom, Mom, just let my sister rot in jail. It's only 30 days. Maybe this time she'll understand she can't go carousing around in the city, drinking and driving amongst friends. Just let her go to jail. It's just county. Mom and dad, right? when are you going to finally get rid of this no good sometimes? Why don't you just let him lay in the grave that he made and give me some peace? Why don't you finally give me some attention? Why don't you recognize what I've done for you? Any of this sound familiar? Of course it does. You see, it is true that the reason why so many families are broken and dysfunctional because parents are so bad. But another reason is because the good children tend to be the bad sibling. Because instead of pleading and petitioning on behalf of the black sheep sibling, they criticize and condemn. And they do nothing to promote harmony and love. They just want to get rid of them because they're filled with such hate. We live in a complicated world because part of the complication is due to complex dysfunctions in the home. But here's where we have the good news. The solution to all this complicated mess is really solved with a simple solution. So let me now tell you what that is by going to my final point, the father and the son who fixes all the mess. Now, as much as Jacob had so much wrong and did a lot of wrong, there was one thing he had right in the form of a right belief, even though he misapplied that right belief. And what was the right belief that he had? Again, verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. As I said earlier, Jacob believed in the promise that God made that he would one day send the promised child who would fix all that is broken and restore all that is lost because of sin. Joseph was correct to believe this promised child, but he was so wrong to think that promised child was Joseph because the moment he treated Joseph like the promised child was the moment Joseph became the problem child. But it isn't until we fast forward into the era of the New Testament that we discover who this promised child is. It's the one that is spoken of in the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the message that there is a father who can fix and restore and heal all and any families of the earth. But it's not any earthly father. It is the father, God the father, who resides in heaven. And like Jacob, he too has a son. But unlike Jacob's son, this son is truly is perfect and he can do no wrong. Okay? And here's the thing. Unlike Jacob, who refused to send his most beloved son to do any work, this father sent the son to do the most crucial, most important work of all. How? By coming into the world as Jesus Christ so he could suffer the full punishment, full penalty for the sins of those who look to him as their savior substitute, who look to him, not themselves, not to anyone else, but to him and him alone to be saved from their own sins. That's the gospel message, right? Anyone who looks to the beloved son will be set free from the condemnation and punishment of their sins. But wait, there's more. Because the gospel goes on to say that after Jesus died from his death on the cross, three days later, the Father rose him again from the dead through his resurrection, Christ's resurrection. And now the Father positions the Son at his right side. Why? So the Son, like Joseph, could give a report about his brothers and sisters. But unlike Joseph, it's not a blistering bad report. It's a report of the forgiveness of sins, 
and the full payment of death. Right? Jesus right now has the Father's ear. And you know what he's saying? He's not saying, oh, look at that Paul, look at that Sally, look at that Jen, look at that Doug, look at that Esther, look, ugh, Tony, oh. He's saying, no, look at that person in light of what I've done. Should I call your name too so you don't feel left out? <laughs> right? And as a result, what does the father do? Does he become punitive? Does he become angry? Does he want to destroy? No. He is eager to love. Love. And do you know one of the ways that the Father manifests his love for us? He disciplines us. The Bible says that one of the ways that we know that we are loved by the Father is that he actually disciplines us. And as we receive this discipline, we change for the better. We turn from our erroneous and sinful ways and we become better individuals that results in us having better marriages. There's no polygamy. There's no affairs. There's no pornography addiction. There's no trash talking or trash uh, you know, down talking to our spouse, and we also become better parents. No favoritism whatsoever, right? Resulting in better neighborhoods, better communities, better society. See, it's only through the powerful message of the gospel that all and every family on earth has hope of healing and restoration. So, for those of you here today investigating Christianity, if you're here right now and your family is struggling and it is going through such turmoil, I implore you believe the gospel. Depend on Jesus to be the brother who speaks on your behalf on the side of the Father. Because if you do, you're going to come to understand that this Father in heaven, he will love you, he will accept you, he will embrace you as much as he loves and embraces the perfect son who can do no wrong. That's what the gospel says. There is no favoritism when it comes to this Father and his son. He loves all his children as much as he loves the perfect son who can do no wrong. You see? And what you do see, that will change you. And you will understand that your father loves you in such a way that when he disciplines you, when he corrects you, you'll know that this is a form of love that will change you for the better. This is how you, friend, become restored and renewed in your family relationships. To the rest of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I tell you the same thing. If your family right now is going through a season of dysfunction and hurt and pain and turmoil, you need to come back to the message of the gospel. And you need to relish it. And you need to really dig it back to your mindset, to your soul, to your heart, where you know what this gospel message says about what the true father, the true brother says about you so that you can have peace in your heart and be a peacemaker in the home. One of the most practical ways to do it is listen to sermons like this, read books like this that speak on this matter, go to counselors who can apply the gospel message into your marriages, into your family dynamic. And it also means spending time with families who got this, who are centering their lives, their family lives around the gospel. But whatever way that you do this, just know it is only through the powerful message of the gospel that your families are able to have the kind of hope this world is desperately hungering for. So here's my final imploring. Do you know this gospel? And are you living it out? This is the pathway of how our marriages, our children, our families, our church, our communities become exactly what God calls us to be, a blessing to the world. My hope and prayer is that you will make your contribution 
here on out. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would think about what this story tells to us as we begin this journey of studying this family, that we would take every moment of this text to really deepen and to challenge and to transform us so that we can have the kind of families that not only uh, is a blessing to ourselves, but is a blessing to our outside community. Lord, you call us to be salt and light. You call us to be ambassadors. You call us to be a priesthood that, that shares the light of hope of the gospel. And Father, I pray that that would, do, that would be the case by beginning in our homes, by beginning in our marriages, by beginning in our relationship with our kids. Father, I pray for all the families here and those who will have families. I ask that you would equip us and enable us to always remember and to rel- relish this gospel so that we would be given the power source needed to live out its wonderful fruit of families that bless each other and spill over to the outside world. God, this world desperately needs strong and stable, successful families. Let it begin in the church and let it always flourish outside of it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our 